Well, good morning. Welcome to Missio again. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the elders here, and we are grateful that you are uh, joining us, worshiping Jesus with us again this morning. Our text for this morning is in Psalm 21. I apologize. I did not look up what um, page that is on in the Pew Bible, but uh, if you don't have a Bible with us, there's a a Bible right in front of you, and uh, maybe it's up there, right there, 457. Someone is thinking in this organization. Amen and amen. I will let you know this. The clock that I'm looking at is wrong. It is set to Ukrainian time. Apparently some Ukrainian came in and decided that they were more important than the rest of us. And so therefore, I'm not responsible for how long I go. That's how I view that. Not only is the hour wrong, the minute is wrong. I see that as the grace of God. All right, so it is 5.39 according to that clock, p.m., and so we're just going to roll with it. Nonetheless, this is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire. And have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. And you have set a crown of fine gold upon his head. And you have, he asked life of you. And you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed Forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Lord, or the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim aim at their faces with with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have revealed to us about yourself in your word. And we thank you that you have, through Jesus, brought your people into relationship with you. And how that then transforms who we are, gives us a new identity and invites us to revel and to exalt in your strength and in your power. Invites us to worship you. Not just in song, although we get the pleasure and to do that, but with, all, with, with every fabric and every ounce of our lives. So Father, be glorified in your people, we pray, as we come together around your word. Not just in this place, but in every congregation around this great city. Father, we pray that you would be glorified 
in every congregation in the city of Syracuse and in central New York, where people come around the name of Jesus, where they lift high the name of Jesus, that you would be at work in your people, that you'd be building your church in this place. Father, we pray and we thank you. Now in these moments, we pray that you would, um, by a work of your spirit, open up our hearts to see what you're doing in this text and what you want us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when we come to this particular text, it would be easy, <clears throat> um, as, David, as David writes this text, it's, it's um, kind of set up um, in, uh, in two major parts. Um, it starts off with, uh, and, we'll, and we'll look at this as we go f- um, uh, verse by verse, but it, it starts off, it's bookended in verses 1 and 13, looking at the strength of the Lord and how the king rejoices in that. And then it, it has these two major sections that deal with the activity of God, and it's got a hinge verse in verse 7. And that's just kind of how it, it, it kind of goes. It's got a, a poetic nature to it. I don't know anything about poetry in and of itself. I wasn't paying attention in English class when I was a kid, um, like every, almost every other gentleman in the room. I couldn't wait to get out, but nonetheless... Uh, uh, that's the way that this particular psalm is is formed, and um, again, this this verse or this poem, this psalm starts off in verse one, focusing on the strength and the salvation of the Lord, which for David uh, and for the people of God, for this king, is for him it's a source of joy and exaltation, right, for the king because it is redefined who he is. Now, in the first section of this, what we're going to see in verses 2 through 6, there's going to be language that it looks like David is defining himself in very kingly terms. He talks about um, uh, strength, and he talks about crowns, and he talks about all of these things that looks like very royal. This is one of the royal psalms, and it looks like he's defining himself by all of these blessings that the Lord has given him. But what we're really going to see is that David, right, as the king who's, who's writing this psalm, is defining himself not in the context of being the king, but he's defining himself in relationship to the one true king. Right? Last week, if you were with us, Bernie talked about, and this Psalm 21 is really, in, you know, the, the, the editors of the Psalms, they put this right next to Psalm 20 because it kind of goes with it, that as the king goes, the people goes. Right? And in this particular psalm, this, as David writes it, he's saying that I am in relationship with the true king. That my joy is found, right? Not in being king over the people, right? Right now we're in a presidential season and you see all these people and they want to be, they want power, right? Now they're never going to say that as they're asking for your vote. They're not going to say, I want your vote because I want power. Right? That's kind of what they want. Right? Um, My daughter likes to tell a story that when she was in the first grade, I think it was first grade or kindergarten or something, that the teacher said, How many of you, how many of you, how many of your parents tell you that you could be president when you grow up? And every kid in the room, except for Sophie, rose their hand. And the teacher said, Sophie, why didn't you raise your hand? She said, because my father tells me all the time there's no way I'm going to be president when I grow up. (laughs) Because we're realists in our home. Not looking for power. (laughs) 
and we understand who we are. If it's going to be president, what are we talking about here? Right? And I know this, that when my daughter sets her mind to something, she's going to accomplish it, and I don't want her to be president. (laughs) So I have to set the expectation for her. (laughs) Right? David's joy in life, although I'm sure he, he, he was thrilled to be the king. Don't misunderstand me. But his joy in life was found in being in relationship with the true king, the king over all things, with the Lord God. And he explains that as he goes through these verses. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. In your salvation, how he greatly exalts. Right? So in my joy is found in your strength, not in my strength, because my strength isn't real. It's temporary. It fades. We don't know the context here when David wrote this, whether he was a young man or an old man, whether, you know, I mean, David doesn't really become king until he's 40. He was anointed to become the king over all of Israel when he's about 16 years of age, but he doesn't fully become king over the whole kingdom till he's about 40, right? Now, 40 still, in some people's mind, a young man. It's really a young man, right? I, I, I passed 40 a little while ago. I don't feel like a young man anymore, although I know I'm a young man compared to some people, right? But I don't feel like I have that much strength anymore. Look at me. I don't have that much strength anymore. I still convince my sons I do, but they're, they're foolish. They can all whoop me. It's in your strength that I exalt, O Lord. It's in your salvation, he says, that I exalt. Not not my ability to save the people, but it's in your salvation, your ability to save us. Verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength we, we're going to look at that again when we conclude, we will sing. It goes from the personal to then the corporate. In your strength, we, the people, all of us will sing and praise your power. So the idea of the strength of the Lord and the salvation found in the Lord become bookends for this psalm. And in the middle of it, we see everything that he then wants to say. In the, in the first section, verses two through six, David talks about how God has blessed him in relationship with, with him. He says, you have given him, meaning the king, you have given the king his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings, right? He explains all of this. And you, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head and he asks of He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever, and you make him glad with the joy of your presence. Like It sounds like David is saying, you've given me this great life, and in that is is where I find great joy. Right? In English, right, when we read these words without really digging into them, we, 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 we read that Man, it's in the stuff that you've given me that I find this joy. And if, if we just pass by 
right? Like 30,000 feet, like we're on an airplane and, and read this psalm, we're gonna think that it's in, it's in material things or in the experiences of life that we find great joy. And, and I'm, not to say, I'm not saying that those things don't bring momentary happiness, whatever that means. I don't really understand that. But joy is found in knowing the Lord God. And David really explains that here. And, and so I want to spend some time, I want to camp out here. I want to land the plane and take a look around if we can. Right? Verse 2, you've given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. If we flip back, right, take your Bible and turn your page, or take your phone and just flip your, your, your finger up a little bit to chapter 19, right? Chris did, Chris Ferugio, my hero, did a great job two weeks ago preaching through Psalm 19. You don't need old yahoos like me if you got young yahoos like Chris, right? Preach, huh? huh? My job's done here. Right? Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, right? These are the same things that David's saying here in, in, in Psalm 21. You've given him his heart's desire, right? The meditation of my heart, right? Right? Let the words of my heart, and the, or let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the thing that's on my heart, you've given my heart's desire, Right? And you've not withheld the request of his lips. Let the words of my mouth, those things go hand in hand, right? Let the words of my mouth, let the meditation, or let the, word, the words of my lips, the, the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord my God. It's the same thing that he says here again in Psalm 21. You've given him his heart's desire. Now, we're not going prosperity gospel here, right? Like, <laughs> I need a brand new whatever. And so that's what's the desire of my heart and God's going to give me that. That's not what David's talking about here, right? Because the thing that gives David joy, he's already told us what gives him joy. It's the salvation of the Lord, right? And every benefit that comes with that, knowing the Lord God, knowing Yahweh is what gives David true joy. It's what makes him sing. It's what, it's what makes him exalt the Lord, right? The, his heart's desire, and he's going he's gonna to unpack this a little bit for us here as he goes along. But the, the desire of David's heart is to, know, is to know the Lord God, right? You've given me my heart's desire, right? You've, you've given me that which I desire above all things, and have not withheld the request of my lips, right? Now, again, context helps us understand this a little bit. If you read through 1-2 Samuel and 1-2 and Chronicles, and you read through the life of David, David doesn't pray to become the king, at least from what we read. God anoints David to become the king. If you read through the narratives of David's life, David's desire is to please the Lord. David's desire is to be a servant. David's desire is to make much of the Lord. Now, he sins, he falls short, he makes mistakes just like you and I do. But his desire is to know, serve, love, and honor the Lord. 
Verse 3. For you meet him, and again, the him here is the king, is David. For you meet him with rich blessings. Right? You meet. That, that, that word meet here is you confront, right? In, in, in Psalm 17 and in Psalm 18, that word meet is used negatively when, when God confronts sin. He meets it head on. As sin is coming towards the people of God, God confronts it, right? He meets it head on so that it doesn't overtake the people. Here, he says, you meet me, you greet me at the door. You meet him. Right? When I come into your presence, you meet me. And how do you meet me? You meet me with rich blessings. Again, when we read that term, our, our instinct is to read that as a material term. Right? You meet me at the door, like you, I, I ring the bell, ding! You know, and it's not like a ring doorbell where it's like, dude, I don't even have the time or energy to come to the door. I'm going to look on my phone. Nope. Not coming. Just going to act like I'm not even here. Turn off the lights. Let's pretend we're not home. Right? No. God is at the door. You meet me at the door. You're waiting for me at the door with rich blessings. This term for blessings is the same term we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God scoops Adam up after creating him and proclaims a word of blessing over him. It's relational. It's, it's declaring to him who he is in relationship to who God is. You are mine. I give you a new identity. You are mine. It's not the stuff that comes with being the, the king of Israel, right? It's not, it's not the palace. It's not the scepter. It's not all the trappings that come with the title. It's not those rich blessings. It's the fact that you've been brought into relationship with the Lord God. You've met me, right? You came after me, Lord. You confronted me. And with that confrontation came this identity, you are mine, you are my child, I am the one who is bringing you to myself, and in bringing you to myself, I am giving you a new identity, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child, right, you're mine, I am going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, I'm going to make you mine, right, it's what God says to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19 at Sinai when he says to them, you yourselves have seen what I have done for you, how I brought you to myself, how I brought you on wings like eagles to myself, right? And I am making you a holy people and a royal priesthood, right? I'm, I'm bringing you. So that's what David is saying right here. He's invoking that same type of language, right? You met me at the door. Rich blessings. Then he goes on. He says, you set a crown of fine gold upon my head. Now, you might look at that and say, well, see? It's, he's a king. But this isn't a coronation crown. It's a totally different word. And again, I get it. In English, it looks like, but in Hebrew, it's a totally different word. 
This, this type of crown that he's talking about here is the crown that, that a true king would give to one of his most prized guests to say, you are welcome at my table. You don't deserve to be here. You are lower than me, but because I welcome you to my table, I'm giving you this crown, right? And so David is being welcomed into an actual feast, right? And God is setting upon him, right, a treasured crown that says that I welcome you to my table as a dignified guest of honor, one who does not deserve it, but one who is being presented with that honor nonetheless, right? The, the image that comes to my mind you know, if you fast forward into the text and go to Luke 15 is when Jesus tells the story of a lost son and a father who meets his son at the door, right? Who meets his son who's coming back and has is, lost everything, who's squandered everything that his father gave him. And when he decides to go home, his father meets him at the door. And as the kid is trying to, to, to say, Oh, God, oh, Father, oh, Father. The Father's like, shh, get my robe, right? Get my ring, put it on him. Kill the calf, right? We're gonna have a feast for this son of mine who was dead has now been found, right? It's the same type of picture where God is the one who brings me into relationship. God is the one who brings you into relationship. God is the one who brings his people into relationship with himself, now through his son Jesus, and brings us to his table, and gives us a position that we do not deserve, a position of, 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 of just being with him. It's, it's being in his presence. David, goes on and he talks about this. You've set a, a, a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Amen. Right, like this is all David asks of the Lord. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for armies. He, doesn't, he just asks for life. And God gives it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. And this is the hope that we have in Christ. Right? Is life. Not, in, not, not life as we've experienced it in this, in this life, but something far greater, something far better. Life in the presence of the Lord God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. His glory is great, not because of what he's done, not because of what he's built, not because of his ability to conquer other lands and his ability to thwart other armies and his ability to, um, you know, impress other uh, foreign leaders. No, this king, David, this earthly king, his glory is great through your salvation. If you read uh, other English translations, it will say his glory is great through your victories. Not through his own victories, 
Now, David is known as a warrior king, right? As a matter of fact, when David wanted to build the temple of the, of the Lord, his, 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 the one thing he, that he asked God that he could do was to actually build God a temple. That was the, that was the, that was the, that was the one tangible that he asked God. Let me build you a house. And God said, nah. No, dude, I'm good. I don't need you to build me a house. Why? You got blood on your hands, dude. I'm going to let your son build me a house. Right? Because you got too much blood on your hands. You've been too active on the battlefield. Right? But here David credits the victories, not to himself, but to the Lord. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you, put, you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Friends, what makes us as the people of God glad? What should make us as the people of God glad? And by glad here, we mean contented, satisfied. It's the joy of the presence of the Lord. What should be our hope, what should be the thing that we look forward to, what should be the thing that we groan for more than any other, is the presence of the Lord. To be with him. Both in the daily Lord, I long to hear from you. I long to spend time with you. I long to, to, to know you as well as in the, in the eternal. Even so, as John prayed, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Right? There should be this longing within the people of God to be with the Lord. Now, I don't mean that in a masochistic way like, like we're all going to you know, fill the cups with some, some Kool-Aid and we're all going to go home. No. That's not what I'm talking about. But there should be a longing within the people of God that our desire is to know the Lord. That our joy is to be with him. Right? Like the brothers on, on the road to, um, to Emmaus, that, that they said that when they were with the risen Christ, that their hearts just leapt when they heard him speak. That there was something about being with him it was just transformative. That there's a joy to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, verses 8 through 12, they speak of another type of activity of the Lord. But before we get there, you have verse 7, which I think is a hinge verse, right? And in verse 7, what we see is, We've seen God's activity, these things that God does for, for the king, and really, not only for the king, but if you, if you take what Bernie said last week, which I think is a, was a great point, that as the king goes, the people go, right? So not only does God do these things for the king, but God does these things for all of God's people, right? He brings us into, into his presence. He brings us to his table. He crowns us, right? But in verse 7, what you see is you see the way that David responds to the Lord, Right? God has done, God has offered salvation to his people. He has brought his people to himself. But in doing so, he then calls his people to respond. 
He calls each and every one of you to respond to him. And what we see in verse 7 is the way that David responds, the way that the king responds, the way that God calls each and every one of us to respond to him. And so you see it. For the king trusts in the Lord. Right? The king trusts in the Lord. The king has seen everything that God has done. The king has heard the invitation that that God has given him. The king has seen the way that God has provided salvation for him. And the king believes and trusts that God is who he says he is. And that God has done what God has said that he would do. And that God will continue to do all that he has promised to do. And through the steadfast love of the Most High... He will not be moved. Right? There's this, there's this response that the king, the king responds to the Lord with. And it's, it's trust. Right? The king trusts the Lord and is sustained in his great love. God is the source of salvation. No one's arguing that. He is the one who provides it. He is the one who sustains it. Right? But David comes in underneath it. And he is saved by it. And he is sustained by it. And he declares that. I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. And then what you see following out of that, verses 8 through through 12, is the way that then God in his holiness, the Lord in his holiness judges all of his enemies as a declaration of his strength and his salvation. Now this is the part of of salvation history that people kind of cringe at and think, "Mm, mm, that's that's not the part that we like. And yet, there's always judgment for sin, right? On the cross and through the resurrection, God judges the sin of his people. He just pours that judgment out on Christ. Right? But God is always going to judge his enemy. Again, I thought Bernie did a great job last week, you know, declaring that enemy, Satan, sin, death. Right? But then there are those that follow in that line of Satan, sin, death. Those that then walk in, in a lineage of Satan, sin, and death. Right? Those that are sons of Adam, or um, what we would also say the you know um, the you know the seed of the serpent. So we see this here. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find all those who hate you, and you will make them a blazing oven when you appear. Right in the presence of the Lord God, sin cannot stand. And those who have embraced it, those who have rejected, they cannot stand. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and a fire will consume them. You will destroy all, the, all their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. And you see then the intentionality of this last phrase. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Friends, if you are not yet among the people of God, I implore you today, be reconciled to God. Right? 
Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. For the Lord will judge those who are not his. This passage ends, again, in verse 13, as it began. Right? Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, and we will sing and praise your power. The people of God respond to the strength and to the power of the Lord, to his salvation, and they do so in worship, right? They, they sing, and, uh, and I want to I just highlight the idea of, of, uh, of worship for a second here, um, because what we see here with David, because these are songs and these are prayers, and they're representative of a life of worship, right? So um, this doesn't, what I'm about to say doesn't discount what they do, that response of singing, but it becomes representative of a life of worship, right? So um, when we hear that term worship or when we think of singing or praising, um, that becomes representative of a, uh, of, a, of a whole. It's a part of, that is representative of a whole. What does it mean to be a, a people who worship the Lord? Um, it's much more than a people who then get in a car and um, flip on a Spotify playlist, right? I was gonna say a CD, but I don't even own a CD anymore, um, right? A, a people who worship the Lord. Um, and I have, uh, I have five, five descriptors here, but we could probably have far more of these. Um, but since we're on Ukrainian time and our time is fleeting, um, I will be quicker than that. Number one, they're a believing people, right? There are people who have placed their hope and their faith in who God has said he is, right? We sing these songs, right? And these songs are, um, um, are declarations of truth, right? We read scripture together, right? And, and scripture is a declaration from God as to who he is. And we as a people who worship the Lord, we believe this to be true about God. All right? We're not a people who say, well, you know, that's what some thought at some point in time. We don't really believe that anymore. What we think is this. No, we are a people of faith. And we're a people who believe that God, A, is real. And that B, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and that he has given us in the scriptures everything that we in this life need to know about who he is and how we're to respond to him in faith. We're a believing people. Now, as a believing people, I understand that that means that I don't know everything, right? Right? And so there are some things I take on faith. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm a believing people. We're a believing people, right? But I believe that God is who he says he is. I believe that Jesus is indeed the son of the living God, fully God, fully man. I believe that he was born, right? I believe that he lived a sinless life to the glory of the Father. I believe that he went to the cross and he bore on that cross the sins 
of, his, uh, uh, of the world, right? I believe that he rose from the dead victorious. I believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father. I believe that he will come again and that he will bring, he will bring me home. Not just me, but all that belong to him. I believe. And nothing shakes that belief. I believe that the Spirit of God lives within the people of God and that he seals those people to the Father. I believe that. We're a believing people. That's what it means to worship the Lord. I believe, right? Number two, we're a confessing people, right? We, we, we believe these things. We read these things, and we confess them. When we sing these songs, or when we read these passages of Scripture, or when we come together and we read Scripture aloud together, or when we do, you know, readings together, or, or whatever, we're, we're confessing what we believe. We believe them and then we confess them. When I share the gospel with someone, I'm confessing what I believe. Right? We're people who confess aloud. Right? The book of Romans, Paul says, if someone believes in their heart, that person confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is, the, what is the end result of those two things? That person is saved. Hmm. We're a believing people. We're a confessing people. We declare. We're not a silent people. Right? And so when we sing these songs, these songs, right, which are songs of praise and exaltation, they should also be songs that are confessing something. Right? Who Jesus is. When we pray, we should pray prayers that are confessing things. When we have conversations, they should be conversations that confess things. Three, we're a repenting people. You want to know why we're a repenting people? Because we're sinful. We're sinful people. Right? We're sinners saved by grace. And so there's an initial repentance that when we, when, when, when we come to a recognition that we are sinners and that we, we need a savior, there's repentance. And then there is a daily repentance because even though Christ has saved me and set me free from the guilt of sin, I still wrestle with the flesh and I still confess my need for a savior. And so just as we prayed today, a prayer of confession, I'm continually repenting. Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Conform me into the image of your son. Right? We're repenting. I'm still going to my sons and my daughter and asking them to forgive me as well. Right? Number four, we're an obeying people. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Right? The, the commandments of Scripture are indeed that. They are commandments. They're not options. Right? I don't get to tick the box for the ones that I want to do. Huh, yeah, I'll do that one and that one. But the, that, that one I don't have to do. Right? And so when the Scripture says that you should love your 
husband or love your wife, that you should love your children. Those are commands. That you should love your neighbor. Those are commands. That you should not, you know, be jealous of what another person has. Those are commands. That you shouldn't steal. Those are commands. That you should be humble. Right? That you should be content. Those are commands. And so forth and so on. And so we as the people of God, as an act of worship, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, right? therefore, as a spiritual act of worship, boom, we obey everything that Christ has called us to do. Not to earn the favor of God, right? Because I can't earn the favor of God, but as a response to what God has done in Christ, as a response to the fact that he's met me, right? That he's blessed me, that he's welcomed me into relationship with him. And fifthly, that we are a priestly people, right? We're a kingdom of priests. That means that we serve one another. We remind one another of who God is. We intercede for one another. We declare to one another, right? The goodness, the greatness of God, the precepts of God. We remind one another of that. And then we go out of this place and we declare to those in this great city and in the world the greatness of who God is, right? We implore the, the people that we're in relationship with, right, to be reconciled to God. We do the priestly work that God has called us to do, right, as his representatives. We're a priestly people, right? Now, there are many other words that we could use to describe what it means to be the people of God. Those are just five of them what it means to be people who worship the Lord, right? But as we sing together, right, as we declare, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, we will sing and praise your power, right? We would be remiss if we thought that to be the people of God meant to just sing, right? Oh, that feels good. I'm going to sing that song. That feels good. Then I'm going to walk out and do nothing else. No, no, no. We sing because we are a believing people. We sing because we're a confessing people. We sing because we're a repenting people. We sing because we're an obeying people. And we sing because we are a priestly people, a people who've been reconciled back to God. If you are not yet part of the people of God, today would be a great day to be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you that you have indeed brought each and every one of us who are in Christ back to you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, for the resurrection, for the way that you have reconciled us back to God. And Father, for any in this room this morning, who have not yet been reconciled to you through Christ, we pray that today would be the day that you would open up their eyes and help them understand their need for Jesus, their need to be reconciled to you. And Father, we pray this not only 
for, for, for this place. We pray that you would be reconciling men and women and boys and girls to yourself all throughout the city of Syracuse and all throughout central New York and all throughout the state of New York and all throughout the United States and all throughout the world. And that you would glorify yourself as you bring men and women and boys and girls from death to life. We thank you for that. Father, we pray that this morning you would continue to conform us into the image of your son Jesus and that we as your people would indeed be these types of people, people who worship you, who sing to you as a people who believe and who confess, who repent, who obey, and who are committed to the priestly work that you've called us to. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.